بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد في الأولين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد في الآخرين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد في الملأ الأعلى إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله this is lesson 53 and in our last our last session we were speaking about how the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam began laying the essential foundations for darul islam in medina we're just now getting into the beginning of the medinan period of the seerah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we're going to see how different this period is from the Meccan period. We began talking about how the foundations were laid for the city of the Prophet ﷺ, and we said that the foundations were represented by three steps. The first was the construction of the masjid, which was priority number one. Constructing the masjid was number one. The second thing he did to establish the foundations of Darul Islam was to affirm and strengthen the bonds of brotherhood, the fraternal bonds between the Muhajirun and the Ansar through a kind of pact known as the Muakhat or the Brotherhood Pact. And the third step that the Prophet took in establishing the foundation of Darul Islam was drawing up a written legal document called a mithaq or a kitab or sahifa which would define the way of life both for the Muslims among themselves as well as defining the nature of the relationships between them and others in the broader community, namely the Jewish tribes. So we spoke about the first of these three steps in our previous lesson. We spoke about how the Messenger ﷺ selected the property or how it was selected for him and how they went about constructing the masjid and all the steps taken in preparing for that sacred space. So what remains among these three is for us to talk about the final two steps, the pact of brotherhood and the Mithaq of Medina. So the Brotherhood Pact, the second thing he did after establishing the Masjid was to establish a pact between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And this pact was known as the Muakhat or the Brotherhood Pact or the Brotherhood Agreement or Bond between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. Looking into the Seerah, we see that it was about five months after his arrival in Medina that this pact was started. That means that depending on the narrations you use, this is concurrent with the construction of the masjid. It's not that the masjid is constructed first and then there is this pact. We get the impression that the pact is occurring around the same time as the construction of the masjid because as we mentioned in the previous lesson, uh, according to some narrations, it took around eight months, and some narrations indicate that it was less, for the masjid to be constructed. So this was a pact 
that was between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And some of the ulama say it was done before the masjid was even complete. When the Prophet arrived in Medina, we know that many other Muslims were soon to follow him. And soon after some months, you have more and more families and individuals arriving in Medina as Muhajirun. And as more and more families are arriving in Medina, they need to facilitate their life in this new city, this new land. People with families five or six months into the Prophet's arrival in Medina, we have, according to some estimates, about a hundred families. Some say more, some say a little less, but we have about a hundred or a hundred plus families. This includes husbands and wives along with their children. So they've all made this migration to Medina. Where are they going to live? With whom are they going to stay? How are they going to establish themselves in this new society? What are they going to do? Whence the muakhat established by the Prophet The pact of brotherhood that would bond the muhajirun to the ansar in a very tangible, concrete way to facilitate their arrival in establishing themselves in the city of Medina. So the hadith tells us that this bonding, this muakhat took place about five or six months after the Prophet's arrival in Medina, and it took place as a formal pact in the house of Sayyiduna Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, who was very young at the time. So he was a very young man, and he narrates the hadith about the pact and says that there were 90 men, half of whom were muhajirun and the other half were ansar. So between the Muhajirun and the Ansar, the Prophet ﷺ joined them as brothers. And this joining between the Muhajirun and the Ansar as brothers was not a metaphorical joining where I say, you're my brother and, you're, and I'm your brother and we're all brothers in Islam in a very abstract sense. It was a literal joining between groups of Muhajirun with groups of Ansar individual to individual as literal brothers, such that in the beginning, it, the brotherhood even extended to inheritance. So if you were in that community as a muhajir paired with an ansari, you were like family, such that if one of them died, the other would inherit from him. That was in the early days in Medina. That was later abrogated in the Qur'an. That particular uh, principle or rule of, of inheritance in the beginning was later abrogated in the Qur'an. But that existed in the beginning. Now, when we look in the seerah, we see that there are copious details about who was paired with whom. And it's beyond the scope of this class to list all of the muhajirun and who among the Ansar they were paired with. But we have entire list in the more detailed works of Sirah. However, we can look at some of these pairings and look at some very interesting parallels. We find Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu is paired with Kharija bin Zayd. 
And when we look at the life of Abu Bakr and the life of Kharijah ibn Zayd, we see that both of them were from the Ashraf. They're from the noblemen of their respective societies. Kharijah ibn Zayd was from the Ashraf of Medina. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu was from the Ashraf of Mecca. So a Sharif is paired with a Sharif. We see Utban ibn Malik is paired with Umar radiallahu anhu. We see that Abdurrahman ibn Auf is paired with Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah. Both of them very much business minded. We see that Talha is paired with Ka'ab ibn Malik. We see Abu Ayyub al-Ansari is paired with Mus'ab ibn Umair. And we see Salman paired with Abu Darda and so on. And there's longer list of these pairings who among the Ansar was paired with whom among the Muhajirun, and so on. But some of the scholars, when they look at this pairing, they notice that when you, when you examine who is paired with whom in the early days during this pact of brotherhood, as you go further along in the seerah, you'll notice something, that as you learn about the different ghazawat, and the different struggles and sacrifices and events that took place in Medina, you're often going to find stories later in the seerah where these individuals are paired together, right? So uh, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari uh, and an incident where he is with who? Mus'ab ibn Umair or where uh, Abdurrahman ibn Auf is with Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah. So you find these stories where the two of them are together. And there's something really powerful and significant about that. What it tells us is that this pairing was not an abstract pairing where you're my brother and I'm your brother and you know, we get along and we're nice to each other. No, it was a pairing that lasted beyond the initial stages of the hijrah as they were getting themselves established. It endured for year after year onwards. It was a real brotherhood. And... It, you see something interesting in tight-knit communities. Uh, often you see this in uh, elite units, whether it's in law enforcement or first responders or military, where there's a lot of very intense training involved. One of the techniques they use is to pair people. So you have, uh, you have one person who's paired with someone else, and they always have to be training together. In all of their training evolutions, they have to be together. Whenever they're sleeping somewhere, they have to be together. This one has to know where the other one is at all times. After they finish their training and they're resting, uh, one has to know where the other one is and be close to that person and looking after them. They pair them up to do two things, to uh, serve as an insurance, as a, as a means of protecting them, lest the other one... Uh, gets injured or gets lost. There's someone to look after him if, they, if they're struggling. Also, it builds the fraternal bonds, the unit cohesiveness. And you see this in military units, law enforcement, higher levels of training, first responders. They do this kind of thing. And you see that by the muhajirun being paired with the ansar, person to person, you have lasting bonds that endure beyond the initial stages of them getting themselves established as uh, fresh arrivals in the city of Medina. This lasted uh, for year, uh, year after year. Now, we notice that the Muhajirun have a slightly different culture 
from the Ansar, and the Ansar have a different culture to the Muhajirun. They come from, the people of Mecca, by and large, come from uh, a more uh, business-oriented, trade-oriented culture and society. And the, the Ansar come from a more agricultural society. Although there's business and commerce there, it's more agricultural in nature compared to the people of Mecca, who are receiving the pilgrims year after year, who are receiving the hujjaj and feeding them and engaging in trade and so on. But the Ansar are the Ansar, and the Muhajirun are the Muhajirun. We look at the Ansar, and we know their name literally means the helpers. So their role was to be people of aid and help to the new arrivals. And they lived up to that title. This is an honorable title given to them by Rasulullah And the Ansar were Ansar. They lived up to that name and wanted their brothers to feel welcomed. And we find in the Hadith narrations uh, stories about how they would compete to honor the Muhajirun and help them out. They would compete with each other to the point of drawing lots. Drawing lots is kind of like flipping a coin about who's going to honor this one and help this one out. They would compete among themselves as Ansar for who they could help among the Muhajirun. You have narrations where they go to the Prophet ﷺ and they say, we want to give all of the spare land in Medina to the Ansar. So they have their homes, they have their uh, date palm groves, they have their orchards, and then they have other lands that are owned by their clans and families that's not really being used. So one narration says the Ansar collectively came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, we want to just give it all away for the Muhajirun to live in, for them to use as they please. And one narration says, take our homes too. We just give all of our homes. They're yours, Ya Rasulullah. And the Prophet ﷺ thanked them for this show of hospitality and honor, but he did not accept for them to give up every single thing they had. Instead, he would tell the companions to use the land that was not being used. One narration says that the Ansar came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, Ya Rasulullah, divide the date palms between us and our brothers. So the date palms, think about this. What are the date palms to the people of Medina? What do they mean for them? The date palm groves are the means of generating income. It's like saying, here we are in greater Pittsburgh. It would be like saying in the 1960s, all the, all the people who owned the steel mills, let's divide all of the steel mills equally between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. We'll give half of all the steel mills to the Muhajirun and we'll keep the other half. That's the lifeline of the economy these date palm groves. So they go and they say this. The Prophet wasallam says, no. He says, no, because again, he, is, he wants them to keep what they have. He wants to encourage generosity within certain limits. So the Ansar, they say, then help us plant and then we'll share the crop. That's like saying, we have all the steel mills. Okay, fine, there, we own them, but 
come help us and we'll divide the profits in half. So at the end of the day, you're still getting half. So if they don't own all of the date palm groves, or if it's not half owned by them and half by us, they will share in the work and the effort and they get half. So it's as if they own half. Because for the Muhajirun, sorry, the Ansar, they already have to put in the work to, to harvest these things, the dates. So these are the examples of that generosity and that willingness to sacrifice from the Ansar to help the Muhajirun. And you have to try to put yourselves in their shoes. You, are, you have the spirit of sacrifice because now you have received the Prophet in the city you are seeing him day in and day out and he's inspiring this and of course there's this willingness it's it's you're in the company of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam you're infused with this great iman so that's the ansar what about the muhajirun the muhajirun have spent years sacrificing and suffering and being with the Prophet ﷺ, they've now migrated and sacrificed even further to get to this new city. And many of them are struggling to get themselves on their feet. So they appreciate the generosity. But these are Ahlul Mecca after all. These are people of nobility and dignity. They don't want to live off handouts. They have nobility and dignity. So they accept the help and the pairing, but they want to get on their two feet. They accept the warm reception, but they want to get in on their own two feet and be independent, because that is the way of people of nobility. So we find some stories about how that played out among the Sahaba, between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. This willingness on the part of the Ansar to sacrifice and go to great lengths to give what they have to the Muhajirun, and then the inherent dignity of the muhajirun who accept the generosity and appreciate it, but also want to be independent and, and ha- be on their own two feet. Perhaps the most uh, iconic narration that describes this tendency is the famous narration between the, the pair of Sayyidina Abdurrahman ibn Auf and Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah radiallahu anhumah. Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah is from the Ansar and Abdurrahman ibn Auf is from the, the Muhajirun. Sa'ad is very eager and he says about himself, of the Ansar, I am the wealthiest. I have the most money and I will divide my money in half and give you half, Ya Abdurrahman. This is the multimillionaire saying, I'm going to divide it in half and you get five million and I keep the other five million. He says, here are my two wives, Ya Abdurrahman. Choose whichever one you wish and I will divorce her so that once she is able to marry, you can marry her. Think about that. Could you say that Sa'ad may have had a favorite? Perhaps. But he didn't say, I'll keep my, the favorite and you take the least favorite, whatever. He just said, pick whichever one you like the most. I'll divorce her. You know, they didn't have the same stigma around divorce. And this is in the early days of Islam as well. So he says, pick who, whomever you wish of the two. I will divorce her. And when she's able to marry, you can marry her. 
Abdurrahman ibn Auf really appreciated this show of generosity and this willingness to sacrifice. But he said in reply to his akh, his brother, joined in this pact of brotherhood, he says, I have no need for this. Just show me where the marketplace is. Show me the suq. And Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah, he says, the, the suq is the suq of Qaynuqa. The suq of Qaynuqa. And the next day, Sayyiduna Abdul Rahman ibn Auf radiallahu anhu got some clarified butter, what some people call ghee, and he got some fat, and he sold this in the marketplace. He's not getting a lot of money out of that. But what does he do with that money? He takes some of that for his needs. He takes some of that and he reinvests that into some more materials. He goes back and day in and day out he's going and reinvesting a little bit more, a little bit more. And he begins to make, to, to turn a profit. And the hadith mentions that it wasn't long before he turned very large profits and expanded his capital. The hadith mentions that sometime later, after Abdurrahman ibn Auf got on his two feet, the Prophet ﷺ saw him walking one day and he wasn't wearing any ordinary clothing. He was wearing very nice, fancy attire. And as he was walking by, anyone he passes by could smell uh, za'faran, the, the scent of saffron, which was put into a a perfume so he's wearing nice clothes and he's walking through the streets of Medina smelling nice he's all perfumed and Abdurrahman ibn Auf informed the Prophet that he got married to one of the women of the Ansar right so he, he got on his own two feet and that's very typical of, of many of the Muhajirun not all but many of them they appreciated the generosity and the sacrifice they loved that and they paired with these individuals, but they also wanted to get on their two feet. Now the lesson here, of there's many, many lessons you can derive from the pact of brotherhood. And this is just one story out of many, but I feel one of the great lessons of the story is how brotherhood for them was not a mere slogan. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, as our example, did not pair with Sa'ad ibn Rabi'ah as a brother, only long enough for him to get on his own two feet and then he went on his on his way and they went separate ways no the ties of brotherhood remained because they were joined in brotherhood by the prophet wasallam, irrespective of his financial status in the very beginning so this means it was a real brotherhood a concrete reality connected to not just uh, platitudes of you're my brother i'm your brother but it was connected to the daily circumstances of their lives. And through the Prophet ﷺ making this pact formal, he was uniting not just people from different tribes and clans, but people from entirely different cities. Because, and you're going to see that theme in the third step taken by the Prophet ﷺ to establish this Darul Islam, and that is in the Pact of Medina, the Mithaq active steps taken to simultaneously uphold pre-existing structures of society, tribal structures, preserving the integrity of those things that were good, while also creating new bonds 
for a new society. So the Brotherhood Pact was, was real, and it wasn't just a, a platitude of, I'm your brother, you're my brother, and it's just lip service. It was real, and it endured uh, well beyond those early days in Medina. The third step in establishing Darul Islam, we said, is this mithaq, this, this uh, pact or this covenant or agreement called Mithaqu Medina. And there are a lot of significant details concerning this agreement, and there are also significant differences of opinion among historians and hadith scholars and researchers concerning this mithaq. But understand this mithaq was an actual written document. And there are significant differences of opinion and questions about the nature of it. For example, historians and hadith scholars and fuqaha, they ask, is this a single document? Or were there several documents that were collected and collated into a single document that is preserved in some of the hadith literature? Was it just one agreement or several? What's the nature of this agreement? Was it one or many? Another question is regarding the authenticity of these narrations that describe the agreement. Uh, where are these narrations coming from? What is their status in the science of hadith? Uh, other questions include the uh, time of composition. When was the mithaq written? When was it uh, signed and put into effect. Was it early on? Was it later? There are some differences of opinion about that. And lastly, there are questions about who is included in the pact. When it talks about the Jewish clans and tribes, which Jewish clans were parties to the treaty and which, if any, were excluded from the treaty? Now, it's beyond the scope of this class to go into all of those details. What we want to do is just take a look at the mithaq itself and a little synopsis, a little history of the document and the nature of the document and just address a couple of points concerning it. We find most of the narrations describing this document within the Sirah literature and certain uh, secondary hadith sources and Virtually all of these narrations that describe the mithaq are uh, mursal narrations. So mursal is a, is a term used in the science of hadith, which means that the chain to the hadith itself, the text, it is in an, in an expedient form where you have a tabi'i or someone in that time period quoting the hadith or the words of the Prophet ﷺ and one or more people in the chain are omitted. So in this case, you know, a famous example would be the marasil of Zuhri found in Bukhari where you have a statement from Imam Zuhri which is quoting the Prophet ﷺ or an incident but he is not quoting who he's receiving it from but he's reliable. How do you tackle these marasil? Are they universally accepted? And if not, what are the terms? That's a different topic altogether. But generally speaking, we accept these marasil, especially when you can gather all of the relevant narrations of this mithaq 
from various collections, you see that it's generally sound. And that's how most of the ulama have received the mithaq of Medina narrations. They say, yes, the narrations are mursal, but collectively, when we put them all together, we see that they all corroborate each other. And not only that, the terms of the treaty, or the terms of the mithaq, are also corroborated uh, in verses of Qur'an, and also corroborated in other clearly authentic hadith. So the conclusion is that it is acceptable, the mithaq of Medina that we talk about. The mithaq has 40 plus terms, uh, closer to 50, and if not more than 50. And it's quite a long document that was written up. And when you read the document from beginning to end, you see that it revolves around three key areas. Matters that concern the Muslims among themselves, how they are to live in this new society. Number two, matters that concern the Jewish tribes in Medina. And number three, general matters that apply to everyone among the Muslims and the Jewish tribes and so on. Now, out of all of the narrations that describe the mithaq that are recorded, the one that we rely on the most is the one recorded uh, either by Ibn Ishaq in his seerah or the one recorded by Imam Abu Ubaid ibn al-Qasim ibn al-Salam. Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn al-Salam has a more detailed version of the mithaq and we'll be reading from that one. And he has this narration collected and presented in his Kitab al-Amwal and he talks about it. This term or this uh, pact or agreement is called the mithaq. Other narrations call it the sahifa or the pages or the scroll. Others call it the kitab, which is the, the you could say the agreement or the treaty or so, or so on. When was this thing drawn up, the mithaq that we're talking about? This document is, some suggest that it was drawn up after certain Jewish tribes were banished from Medina, and we'll be talking about later on. Others say that it was earlier. Some say it, was taken, it took place after certain Jewish tribes were banished from Medina, and if that's the case, it would mean that this document took place post-Badr. But we're not adopting that view in this class. We adopt the view that it was early on as Medina was being established. And that's the view of Imam Abu, Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn Salam. In Kitab al-Amwal, where he cites this narration, he says, we hold that this document was written in the beginning of the arrival of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, at Medina before the idhar, right, the dhuhur, the open manifestation and power of Islam and before he was ordered to collect jizya tax from Ahlul Kitab. And Ahlul Kitab in that context, he says, were three, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayza. He says the first of the three to break the contract were Banu Qaynuqa, the allies of Abdullah ibn Ubay, whom the Messenger of Allah then banished from Medina, then Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayza followed thereafter. So the point here from this quote is that the Imam 
is telling us his view that it was drawn up very early on in the beginning of Medina as Darul Islam. So let's look at this mithaq a little bit and read some of the terms. And we don't have time to read through every single line. We'll, we'll skip a lot of, uh, of the portions of it, especially those that just describe the tribal allegiances. But we want to get a picture of what exactly was written up and what it meant for this new community. And then we'll look at what it means for us. In the beginning of this mithaq, it says, this is a kitab. Now, a kitab here means a formal prescriptive document, a binding document that all parties sign on to and agree with. It's a binding document establishing authority. A kitab from Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam between the mu'mineen and the muslimin, between the believers and the Muslims of Quraysh and Yathrib and those who join with them, settle with them, and make jihad alongside of them. And this is before jihad is actually permitted, right? So what you have here is a mention of Yathrib and not Medina, indicating this is very early on. People are still familiar with that name and people refer to it uh, as Yathrib and it's just recently changed to Medina. They, it says, are one people to the exclusion of all other people. So here is the opening clause of this document, establishing the believers as a single ummah, meaning a religious and a political community. Then it says, the muhajirun, the immigrants from Quraysh, keep to their tribal organization and leadership, cooperating with each other regarding blood money and related matters and ransoming their captives according to what is customary and equitable among the believers. So here, you know, we are in a completely different world now. And it's really hard to understand what's being described if you haven't lived in a pre-modern tribal society where there's no police and there's no military, where your ability to live unharmed is based on your alliances with other tribes and clans. And this document is describing that reality and what's going on. So this is reaffirming the tribal organization of the people, but it's just reorganizing it slightly. So you find that the first clause is describing those who are bound in faith, and this one is talking about the political and administrative grouping. So the basic description in Article 3 is pertaining to blood money, who pays the blood money, and the group solidarity, and who is going to pay the compensation for a crime committed by one of them against so-and-so. Because if someone kills someone accidentally, or there's uh, a payment of diya, that person is not the only one responsible. The whole tribal group has to contribute to this to alleviate any possible bloodshed. So it's describing these realities. So all of the muhajirun together are forming one such group. So it's not just the clans, not just the tribe. All of the muhajirun form this group. So it's as if now 
you have the clan and tribal structure preserved, but it's being reorganized slightly where now the Mo all of the Muhajirun themselves constitute, as it were, a single clan unto themselves, even though coming from Mecca, they all belong to different clans and tribes. So they still have the clan affiliation, they still have the tribal affiliation, but as Muhajirun, they form a collective based on Iman, and that collective operates like a super tribe, if you will. So as a super tribe, they have to work together, regardless of their clan or tribal affiliation. So this is a new community based on Iman, and the structure is still largely based on the pre-existing structure of society based on clan and tribal level. And this is pertaining to matters of blood, money, uh, marriage, inheritance, and so on. Now it continues in Articles 4 through 11 by talking about Banu Auf. Who are Banu Auf in this context? They're not Quraysh. So Banu Auf here is referring to the people of Medina, right? The Banu Auf keep to their tribal organization and leadership, cooperating with each other regarding blood money and related matters and ransoming their captives according to what is customary and equitable among the believers. So this same uh, stipulation in number four is repeated here, but it's towards the clans of the people of Yathrib. And in the article between 4 and 11, he, the Prophet ﷺ mentions each of them by name. We'll skip all of that. But it's mentioning these clans by name from the people of Medina who are party to this agreement. So the same agreement regarding blood money and these matters between the Muhajirun exists with the Ansar and they're named clan by clan from between the Aus as well as the Khazraj. Article 12 says the believers shall not neglect to give aid to a debtor amongst them according to what is customary in matters of ransom or blood money. And no believer shall make an alliance with an ally of another believer to the exclusion of the latter. The God-fearing believers are against whosoever of them acts wrongfully or seeks an act of injustice or promotes sin, transgression, or evil among the believers. They shall all unite against him even if he is the son of one of them. So you know, this is a political document. It's not just about ruhaniyat, about spiritual matters. It is about blood money. It is about uh, matters regarding debt and ransom, tribal conflict, and so on. Justice, injustice, transgression, exacting justice, coming to the aid of people, and so on. So this is now, it used to be, as the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, Unsur Akhaka He used that famous statement from Jahiliyyah, help your brother whether he is an oppressed or an oppressor. He inverted the meaning of that, meaning help your brother if he is oppressed by relieving him of his oppression. And if he is an oppressor, you stop him. So the pre-Islamic way was that your tribe against everyone else. If my tribesman is right, he's right. If he's wrong, he's right. We, we have his back regardless. This is changing that. That even if one of our own 
does wrong, we have to stop him. We don't allow injustice to flourish. It says in Article 14, a believer will not kill a believer in retaliation for a non-believer and will not aid a non-believer against a believer. So again, this is strengthening the bonds based on Iman. He says, number 15, the protection of Allah is one. The dhimma of Allah is one. And the least of them, the least of the believers in status, is entitled to grant protection that is binding for all of them. The believers are each other's allies to the exclusion of other people. So this is talking about political equality between the believers regardless of their status. And this is particularly in this article regarding granting protection. What that means in free Islamic society is, you know, think about, think about territory. There's no police. There's no military. There's no... No, none of these things. So if someone comes from outside of the city, unaffiliated with any particular tribe or clan, how do they know they're safe? There's no guarantee. Anyone could just do whatever. So if someone from a clan in the region decides to offer them protection, they're essentially telling them, we will basically take you in and offer our collective strength as a tribe or a clan will offer you protection so you can move about in this region unmolested no one's going to harm you because people know that you are basically looked after by us we are offering you that protection so this article is basically saying that any believer, even if they have, they, they have a very low status in society, they can offer that to anyone who's coming as an outsider, bring them in, offer them protection, and just escort them. It's not left to certain individuals. There's a certain kind of political equality here between all of the believers in granting protection. It goes on to say, uh, between 16 and 17, now the document is talking about the other communities in Medina. And we said the other communities are the three Jewish tribes. It says in Article 16, the Jews who join us as clients, من تبعنا من يهود, will receive aid in parity or favor. They will not be wronged, nor will their enemies be aided against them. So this is a document or a clause that opens the door for the tribes among the Jews to be as mawali, as clients, unto the mu'minun, the believers. This is an old pre-existing pre-Islamic system, the mawali system. And it existed in the early days of Islam and it existed well into the early Islamic history uh, until it basically got abolished during the Abbasid period for the most part. But this Mawadi system was basically a clientage relationship. So let's imagine uh, we'll go to the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. It's a tribal area, right? Imagine an absolute stranger just goes into that area you want, and they want to live there. Can they just buy a house and live there and just hang out with everyone? It, it doesn't work that way. An ideal situation would be for that person to be sponsored 
to be taken in by one of the tribes where he's not a tribesman, he's not an actual member of the tribe, but it's as if he is because he receives protection through them, he lives among them, they look after him, and he lives his life. This is the Mawadi system. So the, the clause here, number 16, is basically uh, facilitating for the Jewish tribes to join the believers as clients, not as political equals, right? And that's why we don't say this is some kind of constitution, because it's just incorrect language. And this is invoking an established tribal practice from even before Islam, where outsiders will settle among a tribe. It says, number 17, that the peace of the believers is one. No believer will make peace to the exclusion of another, believe, uh, to the exclusion of another believer in fighting in the path of Allah. However, peace must be concluded on the base of equality and equity between them. Again, the believers have a political unity. Their war and their peace is one. There's no individual believer who can unilaterally declare war or make peace with another people outside of that political unity. It has to be among the believers collectively. In every expedition made with us, the parties take turns with each others. So again, there's this equality and fairness among the believers where each clan is bearing the burden of spending the money for travel, for uh, expenditures, uh, and the like. Uh, moving along, uh, we're at number 20. I'm going to skip around. Uh, number 22 says, It is not permissible for a believer who acknowledges what is in this document and who believes in Allah in the last day to support a murderer or give him shelter. Upon whosoever supports him or gives him shelter is the curse of Allah and his wrath on the day of judgment, and neither repentance nor ransom will be accepted from him. So this is saying that if someone f commits an unlawful murder, a murder, it is not permitted for this believer to take that person in and give him shelter where justice cannot be served. This is again one of those areas that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we don't live in that kind of world anymore. Uh, this kind of reality still exists in tribal regions. In certain tribal areas, if someone murders someone else, it is possible for this person from this other tribe to give that person shelter. And the family or the tribe of the victim cannot really get justice because if they try to get justice, well, they're not just facing the murderer, they're facing the collective power of the tribe or whoever's giving him shelter. So to even seek justice could cause a great fitna and a tribal war. So this still happens in certain tribal areas. But this document says very clearly that this is impermissible. You cannot give shelter to murderers. And if you do, مَنْ آوَى مُحْدِثًا فَعَلَيْهِ لَعْنَةُ The curse of Allah is upon that person. And then it says, Whatever you differ about shall be brought to Allah and the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And going through uh, 24, 25, 26, you have some of the terms pertaining to the Jewish communities. 
And these are terms that they agreed to and they uh, later on violate, which results in certain political consequences. So it was entirely fair exactly what happened to them because they were parties to that agreement and agreed to the consequences. So among these, in Article 25, it says that the Jews of Banu Auf are a community alongside of the believers. So it doesn't mean they are uh, on parity with the believers. They are a distinct community, but they are secure in this political arrangement uh, as, I, as, as a separate community. It says the Jews have their deen and the Muslims have theirs. This applies to their clients, their mawadi, and themselves. But whoever does wrong or commits treachery brings evil only on himself and his household. So that's 25. Now 26 to 35 list out all the clans and sub-clans and the mawadi to whom this applies. So it lists out all of these people, these collectives that were there in the time. 36 says, none of them may leave without Muhammad's consent, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. There is no refraining from retaliation for a wound. He who sheds blood brings it upon himself and his household, except he who has been wronged, and Allah demands the most righteous fulfillment of this treaty. Now this term in number 36 says none of them can leave without the consent of the Prophet And the ulama say that this term yakhruj, here it could have two meanings. It can mean leaving on a military expedition or it can mean leaving the area and just relocating. And it's likely that the second interpretation is what is meant here. That they're not permitted to just leave this political arrangement and go out on their own somewhere else unless there is the consent of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it goes on uh, that the valley of Yathrib, Medina, is a haram, a sanctuary, and haram for the parties to this document. The protected neighbor is like oneself as long as he does not harm or act treacherously. No protection may be granted without the permission of the parties to this document. Whenever there is a murder or dispute between the people of this document, from which evil is feared, the matter is to be referred to Allah and His Messenger Allah demands the most pious and righteous fulfillment of this document. Uh, so, what you find in, in these articles between like 40 to 44 is basically uh, in the treaty or the document, it is forbidden for these other groups to make their own separate deals with Quraysh. So as a political unity, these other clans and tribes among the Jews, they cannot go and make their own independent political alliance with Quraysh. That doesn't make any sense because there's conflict between Quraysh and the Muslims in Medina. So this is putting it in the document that they are in this collective agreement. They cannot go and make their own agreements and political alliances with enemies. It, it says that they, the parties to this treaty, undertake to aid each other against whoever attacks Yathrib. Not only are they forbidden from making an alliance with Quraysh, they're implicitly agreeing that if Medina is attacked by anyone outside, that they also have to bear the expenses as well as participate 
in the defense of Medina. That's a part of the agreement. And we're going to see how they agreed to this and violated it left, right, and center. Number 45 says, and we come to the end, if they, the Jewish community, are called to an agreement, they will accept it. And if they call for the same, it is incumbent upon the believers to accept it. If they ask the Jews to make peace with an ally of theirs, they shall make peace with him. And if they ask us for a similar thing, the same shall be incumbent upon the believers, except if someone makes war on account of religion. Harab din. Every group is responsible for the part that faces them. So basically, the Jewish community cannot aid the people of Mecca against the believers, but the believers uh, uh, could aid, uh, the believers could not aid anyone who is independently trying to fight the Jewish tribes. So, you know, we can't go and support these people who want to fight the Jewish tribes. And likewise, they can't support people who want to fight us. That was the agreement. And this applied to the Jews of Al-Aws, meaning Banu Quraida and the others, and their allies and their Mawali. And the end, it says, this kitab, this agreement, will not intervene to protect an unjust man or a violator of a pledge. He who goes out is secure and he who stays in Medina is safe, except the one who acts unjustly or in violation of the pledge. Allah is the protector of him who is righteous and God-fearing and so is Muhammad, the messenger of Allah The most fitting to be the parties to this document are those who are righteous and benevolent. So we've just did a, a, a panoramic bird's eye view of the basic terms of the treaty. It really deserves a more detailed study, but that's really beyond the scope of this class and the nature of this class. But this is a political arrangement. So after the establishment of the Masjid and the Pact of Brotherhood between the Muhajirun and the Ansar, we have this pact that solidified the political arrangement uh, of Medina. Now, we have a couple of minutes left. Some people present this mithaq as the world's very first constitution. And it's very inaccurate to describe this as a constitution. That is appropriating uh, a modernist language and applying it to something in the pre-modern period. We don't say it was a constitution uh, because when you use the word constitution, you're thinking of a secular, liberal democracy and the like. And that's not the case here because this was not a democratic process. The Prophet ﷺ is receiving wahi from Allah and many of the items are updated with fresh revelation and certain things are later abrogated. So a constitution is basically set in stone. It doesn't get abrogated. You may have amendments, but things aren't abrogated altogether. But things were abrogated in this uh, document. A lot of the ahkam pertaining to families and tribes and commerce were added uh, after this mithaq and this is why there's differences of opinion about whether it was a single document or many documents that were collated and presented as a single one talking about early agreements that took place between the Muslim community uh, and the Jews. So inshallah we will uh, make a few comments about that maybe next week in a little more detail but we'll move on inshallah to the next stage which is building up to we'll, we'll look at the demographics of society who are these tribes where they came from um, 
how a society functioning after the foundations were set, after the establishment of the masjid, the pact of brotherhood, and the political alliance. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. No questions? Yes. So then, correct me if I'm wrong, then the rules of mahram and all that stuff would apply? Not entirely. Okay. But in terms of inheritance, it was. Just but inheritance specifically. Yeah, well, that was abrogated. Yeah. And then that's my follow up question. How long was the period of mu'akha, even though obviously it continued beyond the period, mm-hmm. beyond the abrogation? How long was it? Why was there an abrogation? Because the, abrog- the abrogation occurred after the muhajirun had established themselves in the society so that extra support wasn't really as needed a couple years later once they've established themselves was it one-sided or if they established themselves was it then inheritance if the muhajir passed away would the inheritance fall upon the yeah as well yeah but it was short it was very short-lived it was it was long enough for them to get themselves established and those things were abrogated. Yeah. Why is there omission of some of the narrators? Uh, there's different reasonings. Sometimes uh, the reason why it's it, it's either known and it just gets omitted, and they're just transmitting directly. It's like if I say to you, the Prophet sallallahu says, "Inna bin niyat." Is that a hadith mursal? I'm not citing a chain. I'm not saying, you know, I got this, you know, from, from, I'm not citing a Senate going all the way back to Bukhari, who cites his Senate going all the way back to the Sahabi. Uh, but there's an easy way to reference back what I'm saying to the Ummahat, to the Maraja. So you know, there's different reasons why that is. And there's differences of opinion about the degree of acceptability, how much or if even the Marasil are accepted. But the, the general position is that these kinds of marasil are accepted, especially when they're coming from certain narrators where they're known to be reliable. Uh, so theirs would be accepted, whereas those who are less so, they wouldn't accept their marasil. <laughs>